The Kathy Durant Show, broadcasting on BBS Radio Television on the iHeart Network. I am so excited to introduce my guests today. They are authors of a book called Necessary Death. It has to do with horror movies and why we like them and what does that mean. And I'm just so excited to introduce Chris Grasso and Preston Farsell. So did I get your last name right, Preston? Hey, close Fossil. enough. I, I used to tell people uh, fossil like the watch back when I worked in optometry. Uh, I started out saying fossil like what you dig up and people would like stand there and stare at me. And then I realized that like people had more of a connection with the watch than they did with like dinosaur fossils. And so it became fossil like the watch at the mall. You know what? I love that watch. The fossil. They're great. I love yeah. it. Yes, 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 yes. So Preston, tell me all about how you guys met. So Chris and I were both on the staff of Fangoria magazine during a period that it was being run out of Dallas. And Chris read my debut novel called Our Lady of the Inferno, which was published through the Fangoria imprint that they had at the time. And the the idea for Necessary Death is actually Chris's idea. This is his brainchild. This is this idea that he had had brewing in his head for years to do this book that looked at the intersection of horror movies and mental health and spirituality and well-being. And he read my book and he got a hold of me and told me about it. And he said, I wanted to do this and I've known that I needed somebody to do it with me. And I've been waiting to find the person that was the right one to understand this and to have the skills to tackle it. And he said, I think that's you. And so Chris sent me the pitch deck that he had put together and we got on the phone and we talked about the different ideas that he had for it. And by the time we were done with that first conversation, I was like, I'm in, let's do this. That's some heavy stuff, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, this wouldn't be a book without Preston for sure. You know, I, it it might've been my brainchild, but he helped bring it to life. It's our book completely. Um, you know, I had, like you mentioned, I read his debut novel and I've read, I think, everything you've written since. Um, and I'm just floored by Preston's writing. It was actually very intimidating working on this with him because, uh, you know, I, I'm not even being sheepishly modest. Preston just blows me out of the water with his writing. But uh, it was great for me. It was challenging. And it also made me go deeper into myself. And why am I writing this book, really? And um, yeah, I am I couldn't be happier with the outcome. And this is a, a as Preston mentioned, something that was um, an idea I had, it, it was actually back in 2018. So this is like five years in the making, and it's been a real passion project for both of us. And uh, I couldn't be more thrilled to you know, co-author this with Preston and for it to finally be seeing the light of the day some five years later and coming out on Halloween. Like what a more, what more perfect day could you ask for? Well, I have to say congratulations. And when I first talked to your um, publicist, uh, you know, and we talked about this would be connected to highlight horror movies. I was like, well, I remember the exorcist and I remember being under the bed, terrified. <laughs> and then, I said, then I remember Friday the 13th and the 13th. And I was like, oh, my 
God, those were some scary m- movies back in the day, but they can't light a candlestick to the kind of horror films that come out now. So I'll go, you know, I have to say to you, Preston, why do you think uh, as a society we're hooked on horror movies? What's the attraction? It's the cinematic equivalent of going to the carnival. It's kind of the same idea of why would people willingly strap themselves into a piece of machinery that's going to jettison them at like a hundred miles per hour upside down on a thin metal track, 200 feet in the air where there's nobody to help them. It's the, it's the thrill. It's the excitement. It's that adrenaline rush. And then horror probably along with fantasy are the only two genres of movies or stories where you can do anything. If you have a horror movie or a fantasy movie and a dream demon shows up and starts possessing teenagers nightmares or a seven foot tall undead 12 year old in the body of a middle-aged zombie starts whacking camp counselors that's not out of the bounds of the storytelling. That's 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 normative. You can't do a romantic comedy where that happens. You can't do a prestige drama where that happens. But you can do a fantasy or horror movie where that happens. And so the the the, the narrative possibilities are completely limitless. Yeah. So you think it's shock, Chris? You think it's the shock therapy that gets us? You know, you- there is an element. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with what Preston said. I was kind of laughing to myself because I, you won't find me ever on a roller coaster. I will not get on them. Like, I can't do them. I'll watch any horror movie you put in front of me. But um, that's, I guess, my my shock therapy, as you said. Um, but, you know, I while I was thinking about this book, part of it for me was, you know, there's a, a sense of like a cathartic release almost um and i know this sounds weird and morbid but you know when when you're seeing these individuals their lives being taken for me i've likened that at times to a part of myself um being taken away a part that i've struggled with you know i've lived with addiction to alcohol and drugs i've lived with major depressive disorder ptsd all sorts of different things and while I have a myriad uh, coping skills I work with from meditative practices to breath work and nature, um, playing music, uh, there's something to be said. I, I, I count horror movies as just as valuable a resource in my healing journey as other, other modalities that would be more traditionally thought of as, as, um, healing and helpful on our paths to wellness. So do you feel that way? because of the ending how they end you know so they do they ever really end that's kind of the running joke you know like you think it's over and then here we are 12 one more thing later yeah (laughs) and and one more scare right but but you know there's also in most horror movies uh you know there is a survivor and uh, often it's what's called the final girl and i always loved that you know the empowerment of females overcoming the zombie and um you know, Preston, you wrote, I believe it was in the, the Jason Voorhees chapter, how the kind of big masculine macho, you know, portrayal that that, that was Jason. And, um, you know, I, I always appreciated, especially in relation to him, like when you would have people that would overcome that, because I was bullied in high school. You know, I, I had friends, but I was always kind of the alternative kid into skateboarding and punk rock and hip hop and a lot of things that weren't popular um, back in the 90s when I was growing up. 
And so part that resonates with me, seeing those villains, so to speak, like kind of overcome and the underdog surviving. And uh, so, yeah, there's a testament to perseverance that I can relate to with that. So, Preston, you think, uh, do you think everyone loves the underdog? Is that? Oh, most definitely. Uh, I don't think I brought this up in the book. I don't think there was really an organic opportunity to do it. But there's this really great book called Men, Women and Chainsaws by a professor named Carol Clover. And wow. she is the person who came up with the term that Chris used a moment ago, the final girl. And she's the one who solidified that as this uh, trope when we're discussing horror films. And her theory was that when we go to a horror movie, we're initially drawn in by the monster because the monster is cool and powerful and aesthetically interesting to look at. But we ultimately end up identifying with that final girl. And when the end of the movie comes, we're rooting for her to win and we're rooting for her to survive. And we've identified with her as this underdog aspect of ourselves. And we see the victims who haven't made it up to that point as the uh, the, the, the cast off aspects of our personality and as the uh, the people around us who cannot succeed, whereas we can. And so when you've got that final girl taking out Jason, taking out Freddy Krueger, there is this audience identification with her. And in that moment when she finally wins, there is this cathartic release for the viewer because that becomes our victory, too. First, they said cigarettes were safe. Now, they say they didn't market e-cigarettes to teens. Fact. More than one in four high school students are vaping. Same lies, different day. Tell Big Vape to quit lying. Um, Chris, do you ever have sympathy for the monster? Ever? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's such a part of me that at times can relate to them, too. Um, going back to Frankenstein's monster, um, that's one I really relate to him. He was very misunderstood. He was this individual that was created in a lab that didn't ask to be created and um, you know, he was very misunderstood. Now that's not to say that's the case with all, all villains, but there's, there's often something that I resonate with, you know, that's why I wanted part of why I wanted to write this book. And, um, you know, obviously I'm not wishing death upon anyone and I don't advocate for death and, you know, the title necessary death, not to get off the topic of your question, but, you know, while it sounds pretty gnarly, it's, it's actually in relation to more like the parts of ourselves that no longer serve us um the need for those to die to 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 be laid aside so that we can break free from that bondage and move forward and become a more skillful embodied healed version of ourselves um so yeah you know and when you or when i at least watch these people go up against the victims or, or i'm sorry the monsters yeah, I might root for the monsters sometimes. I'm not going to lie. But um, at the end, I'm always glad, like I said, when that they, they do overcome and, and they live. And yeah. Preston, do you remember the Wolfman? What do, what do you think of that character? I felt sorry for the Wolfman. I feel sorry for a lot of werewolf characters. I, uh, I, I felt sorry for him, too. Werewolf, werewolf movies are kind of difficult for me to watch and kind of sad for me to watch because they're always these genuinely decent people who get put into this difficult situation where they're kind of doomed to do this. 
And they're unique among the horror movie monsters in that most of the time there is this act of malice occurring. And the monster has made this conscious decision that I am going to become this predatory creature. Whereas with the Wolfman characters, it's forced upon them and then they have to navigate with the consequences of that. It's it's almost like watching movies about people with a terminal illness and mm. them going after the people around them as this kind of analog for the way that people going through the process of dying can sometimes turn on the people around them. Uh, so werewolf movies are very often kind of at the, the, the bottom of my viewing list just because I, I think they're very sad. Yes. So what it, what would you say the difference is between today's horror movies and the ones of back in the day in the 60s? Body count. Chris? <laughs> well, Preston just nailed it. Body count. Right. <laughs> That's it's, true. It's like That's the advance true. of society. Everything's got to be more, 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 more. Yeah. I've got to say, though, like there are some some of my favorite more. Uh, recent horror films. Um, I, I think A24, it's a film company, has been doing an amazing job. Personally, I love films like, uh, there's one called Hereditary and Midsummer. And these are, um, kind of slow burn films that actually have a really, uh, really clever storyline attached to them. The Witch. Um, and, and I guess people are now calling it kind of elevated horror. I don't know, whatever you want to call it, but, um, and Jordan Peele's films, for example, Get Out, Nope, you know, there's such a social commentary, but even dating back to the 60s and 70s, I was very fortunate to interview uh, an icon in the horror field before he passed away named George Romero. And we were talking about his film, Night of the Living Dead. And, you know, he said that was as much, if not more, a social commentary film than it was a horror movie. Same with Dawn of the Dead, his follow-up. But specifically with Night of the Living Dead, you have this African-American protagonist. Like, he makes it through the whole movie. And not only that, he slaps a white woman in the film. It's like, whoa. Like, whoa. And then he makes it to the very end. And he's shot by these like kind of like rednecky hunters that are clearing out zombies. Uh, he obviously wasn't one, but th- this was Romero, you know, making commentary on the state of the racial divide in our country. And then his follow up film, Dawn of the Dead, you know, a bunch of zombies that are just milling around a shopping mall. And at one, there's one scene where, um, the guys, two of the, the officers or the cops, SWAT cops ask him, you know, like, why are they here at the mall? And it's like, you just come back to what you know. And so they're just kind of mindlessly. And, the and you know, looking around, I was on the bus earlier today and I was looking around. It was early and there was a lot of high school students going to class that, that I could feel like I could make the argument that there's zombies everywhere. Like they're literally just on their phones, like mindlessly mm-hmm. scrolling. And I don't mean to sound old and curmudgeon. It was just like, wow, you know, just I saw a relation, a correlation there. I have a question for the both of you. What do you think Michael Jackson did with Thriller and the pop culture? So he had all these creatures coming from the grave and all of a sudden there's a dance that takes over the world. What do you think of that whole concept and how it ties into horror movies and, 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 and literally came, became a part of our lives? Preston. It was one of the most perfect moments in pop culture history because when Thriller came out, horror movies had become 
really big box office. In the 1970s, you have these prestige horror films like The Exorcist and Don't Look Now, and they were these serious, thoughtful films, but they weren't these zeitgeist-capturing things like Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, uh, the Child's Play movies. Uh, the 1980s was the era of the horror movie as pop culture icon of them. Uh, I mean, Freddy Krueger had his own, I, I want to say breakfast cereal. He had his own TV show. Uh, Jason Jason Voorhees was on the Arsenio Hall show. Uh, so horror movies went into the mainstream in this incredibly major way where they had once been this, this subculture, but now they were this, you know, this mainstream thing. And Michael Jackson, I don't know that anybody can ever possibly be as big as Michael Jackson again. Maybe Taylor Swift is right now with the whole Eras tour, but I mean... He was probably the most famous person in the world at the time. I remember a slightly older friend of mine half-jokingly saying if Michael Jackson had decided that he wanted to run for president against Ronald Reagan in the 1988 election, he might actually have been able to have won it just because he was Michael Jackson. And so you've got this fusion, this perfect coming together of everything that is major in pop culture at the same time. MTV, the music, oh, yes. Michael Jackson, horror movies, and it's all here in one place. And then they've got this this legacy carryover with Vincent Price doing the narration. I don't know that they're... <laughs> yeah, it, it is a perfect moment of pop culture symbiosis, and I don't know that we'll ever see something like that again. Chris, do you remember they broke network television? It played live on network television, and every family was at the television watching. Well, I remember because I wasn't at the television watching. It scared me to death, that video, which is so funny. Like, I would literally leave the room, and uh, and I loved Michael Jackson. He, Him and Van Halen growing up were, like, my two, like, I don't know, as a kid, I loved both of them. But the thriller video um, with, you know, Preston mentioned Vincent Price, his, his voice and his, you know, maniacal laughter in it, and then the zombies creeping up. The interesting thing was my brother loved that video, and... Um, he wasn't scared of it and he would watch it. I would leave the room. Now, fast forward many years later, here we are both grown adults. My brother will not do haunted houses. He won't watch horror movies. And I'm all about that life. So it's, it's interesting, you know, how life can, can change us, I suppose. But yeah, I remember that moment or moments because yeah, I, I was, I was running away from the TV quite frequently. Well, I have to ask you, uh, ask you guys, um, can you say your heart wasn't putting uh, necessary depth together where you, what, what, what did you hope when you were creating it that people would take away from it? Uh, Chris. Yeah. You know, so for me, the whole idea sparked because I used to go, I still do, but um, when I was living in Connecticut, I would go to a lot of horror conventions there. Um, they had a great one up in Worcester, Mass called Rock and Shock. It's no longer uh, a thing, but I used to love that and other ones in New England. And I had been spending a lot of years uh, working at this point in the mental health field with teenagers who struggled with addictions and self-harm, eating disorders, depression, all sorts of things of that nature, plus my own struggles. And, um, you know, I would meet 
a lot of just really cool people at these conventions, um, both actors and people, you know, just people there like myself to, to visit and check it out. Um, and I was at first surprised and then not because it really started to make sense, but the amount of people that would, would share pretty openly about their own struggles with mental health issues, varying from across the board. And, um, I think I was driving home from one of the rock and shock events in Worcester mass back to Hartford, Connecticut, where I was living. And the thought just popped in my head, like, what about a self-help or, you know, whatever, a, a, a tra- personal transformation book, a, a wellness book, whatever you care to call it, that's geared more towards this demographic of people who might otherwise not really be interested in, in these topics. And, uh, I kind of mulled on it for a little while. And then, yeah, it it was shortly thereafter I started to put together a proposal. But while doing that, I realized I need somebody that's like... Needed a partner. And hence Preston enters the picture. So Preston, what was the attraction for you? When we we think about horror movies, do you you think it's the overwhelming feeling that gets us? It it, like, it's over the top. And those are the ones where you go, oh, I watched that movie. It was so crazy. I mean, but internally, what does it do for you? I mean, it, it, I know it, it 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 just revs up your metabolism. But other than that, is there some kind of thought provocative thing that happens to you that make you want to change and be a better person than the monster? Or <laughs> what happens, Preston? Oh. Horror movies are all stories of struggles for survival and struggles to overcome obstacles that are thrown at us, either because we make mistakes ourselves, as in the case of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the kids kind of bring this upon themselves because they go someplace they've been explicitly told not to go, or because life throws a curveball at us beyond our control, like the Nightmare on Elm Street films, where these kids are targeted because of this hereditary curse, the way that somebody might be the, you know, suffering from a hereditary mental illness uh and so a horror movie is ultimately a struggle uh, a story of struggle and survival and of trying to overcome the odds and what's thrown at us and so i feel like it's a really wonderful medium through which to explore ideas of bettering oneself and coping with mental issues, coping with spiritual issues, coping with ideas of self-improvement and well-being. Uh, I thought that the really what was it attracted me to Chris's idea was that it is such a brilliant concept because it is marrying these things that on the surface don't really seem to belong together. But when you really sit back and look at it, it's, it's really the same thing. So do you think that one day a movie may come out of you guys? some filmmakers of our movies i've been trying because i've got three fiction horror books in print now and one of them was optioned for a while and then it reverted back to me but uh i hope so be really cool yeah Yeah. Preston's novels should see the screen for sure yeah yeah, and what about you, Chris? Can you see yourself becoming a filmmaker? Uh, I mean, I I've always obviously I love film, and um, I'm I'm doing a little work with a company called uh, Fourth Dimension, and it's a it's more about like punk rock and hardcore documentaries. But I think I texted Preston once. I'm like, dude, we should like explore a movie or something. Um, and I would love to, you know, because 
that is like Preston said earlier, the beauty of the horror genre is there's no limitations. There's no bounds. It's, it's just your own mind that limits you. And other than that, it's do whatever you want essentially. And um, I, I think, yeah, I think there's potential for some really cool stuff. I, I I've learned in my life, never say never period. So. Yeah. So, you, so do you uh, feel like the writers of, horror movies, uh, uh, Chris, you think that they're free? Their mind is just completely free as they just throw ideas up against the wall. And you know, the old saying, if it sticks, it's gravy. So what do you think goes into their minds as they uh, create these stab you, cut you, drag you down the street, throw you out of building, run over you with a car? What's going on? Are they sure. I I wonder. I I don't have a great answer. I you know Preston's probably better better to answer this one. But I will say one of my favorite books um, about writing, and I haven't read many, but uh, it's a book called On Writing by Stephen King, and I found that so fascinating that you know he wrote these iconic horror novels like Cujo, and he was blackout drunk. He doesn't even remember writing them. So Whoa. what was going on in his mind? He was just <laughs> drinking and writing. He's now. Wait. Just free. Free. Yeah, he was free. All right. Yeah. But Preston, I would love to hear your thoughts on this one because, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. I think it really varies writer by writer and what a writer wants to achieve with a particular movie because uh, I love the Friday the 13th movies to death. That is my all time favorite horror movie franchise. And several years ago, they came out with a book called Crystal Lake Memories, which is the complete oral history of the making of the Friday the 13th franchise up to, I want to say, Freddy versus Jason, if I recall correctly. And so many of those movies were literally just soulless cash grabs. They weren't even bringing back the same writers. They would have a really successful film. It would make all the money and they'd be like do you want to bring do you want to bring the writer back from the movie that made us all the money no we're gonna have to pay him more money get get some other guy uh yeah and then versus something like uh the screen franchise the the first five entries of that are just fantastic and it's the same people working on it giving it this love and this care and this attention and really paying uh, a lot of focus to the characterization and the relationships between the characters. So it's it's really kind of this bell curve thing. It's either you you really love the genre and you really pay a lot of attention to storytelling and writing, and it's this labor of love, or you realize you can really make a lot of money off of horror movies, and let's do the least amount of work we can to make all the money. Yeah. So would would you say, Chris, uh, Necessary Death is a tribute to uh, horror movies or would you go it's that a, For me, it's a love letter. Yeah, it's a love letter to the horror genre and, and the impact it's had in my life. The, the, the just numerous ways in which it's helped me cope throughout my life and, and a lot of insight it's given me into myself. Um, absolutely. That's... You know, and I, I I do want to say quickly before I forget, Necessary Death is, I, I wish I came up with it. I love that name, but I want to give credit where it's due. And it's the name of a song from a friend of mine, Greg, out in Connecticut. It has this wonderful band called End, and uh, they have this great video and this great song, and I just, I love it. And it fits this book to the T, like the song and the energy behind it. But I asked, you know, Greg, like, hey, is it cool if I use this? Because, like, I can't think of a better name. And he's like, yeah, dude, I'd be honored because Greg is also 
a huge horror guy. He owns a recording studio. I've recorded there. Halloween's it's all it looks like it's Halloween in there, 365 or uh you know, 364, whatever. Um but yeah, so that's what it is for me. It's just a love letter, a gratitude, and and in the hopes that maybe this'll connect with people and help them avoid some of the pitfalls I've gone through in my own life. Um yeah. So how did horror and Halloween come together? How did that concept, what's the attraction there? Halloween, kids go knocking on doors to get candy. They're happy. They're wearing costumes and there's not evil attached to it. But how did they get together? Horror films and Halloween. Preston. Well, I mean, Preston, yeah, the Sawain you know, pagan connection. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so, so very many cultures have this idea that around this time of year, that there is this thinning between the barrier between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. You've got San Juan, you've got Dia de las Muertos uh, in Poland. I can never remember the name of this thing because I only know like 10 Polish words and my grandmother would be so mad at me. But uh, all of these various cultures have these rituals and rites attached to this one particular time of the year where we believe that it's possible to have this contact with the dead and these ideas that we costume ourselves as things that frighten us in order to scare away malevolent spirits while welcoming into our homes the spirits of the departed and the loved and friends and family who we have lost over the years. And it, it's something very primal. It's something that very much speaks to the idea of there being this Ur culture and Ur people where we all came from, that it's deeply ingrained in the human consciousness. And it's it's really startling that when you start to investigate the uh the rituals and rites from cultures from Mesoamerica to Eastern Europe to uh Ireland, who have been so vastly geographically isolated from one another, but they all have these very similar ideas and these all very close rituals and rites. It's it's something that's inbred into us. It's something we're born with. It's something instinctual. And the idea of this time of year being a time when there's this, this parting of the veil between the living and the dead just makes it really conducive to, well, we're already dealing with a bunch of stuff relating to dead people. Let's, let's watch a horror movie. <laughs> uh, and Chris, for you, what what's your take on this whole craze with zombies now? Where, how did this all start? And could, and let's bring up Michael Jackson again for Thriller because those were zombies. They were coming out of graves, arms falling off, and skin yeah. filling. Uh, so, what do you think? I mean, I love zombies. You know, I was so happy to include a chapter in our book uh, about zombies. And uh, it's not one of the, the better known zombie films, but it's it's one that just resonated with me. And, and, and I know it resonated with Preston, too, because there's a lot of punk rock kind of stuff in there. And it's a lot of fun. And to me, it's a, just an iconic uh, sort of horror horror vibe to it. And um yeah, I don't know. Just, you know, the, the, the living dead, the reanimated, like zombies. I was watching actually this new 
Star Wars show called Ahsoka. And sorry, spoiler, if you're a Star Wars fan, don't listen. But even in the the last or second to last episode, they had like zombie stormtroopers. It was it was two of my favorite worlds colliding. And I'm like, wow, now I've seen everything, you know, like this is awesome. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what what it is specifically about zombies. I mean, I'm sure The Walking Dead played a huge, you know, part in that. Um, But dating back, like you said, Michael Jackson before that Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead and um, and I'm there's probably even zombie films before that that I'm not thinking of at the moment. But um, if it's horror and it's spooky and it's creepy, you can count me in for sure. So Preston, if you had to uh, describe uh, Necessary Death what would you say about this book? I would say that it is a spiritual psychological text. It is something that is meant to appeal to horror fans, but it's also meant to appeal to movie fans. It is a book for anybody who has ever felt like they have struggled with something, who feels like they're struggling with something now, be that mental, emotional, or spiritual, and who wants to explore that through the context of something safe and familiar, which is movies. Uh, A lot of people are very reticent to seek mental help. A lot of people fear the stigma. A lot of people don't have access to the financial means to get it. A lot of people are just afraid. But this isn't a doctor and this isn't a psychiatrist and this isn't an expensive thing. It isn't a scary thing it's a book that you can pick up and read and hopefully take away something that proves mentally spiritually emotionally helpful constructive and restorative to whoever finds it wow yes what what would you i don't know how to follow that up i you know (laughs) just listening to preston say that like honestly my heart just got really full because that is why you know, I wanted to do this book and, you know, what was coming to mind as I was listening to Preston so eloquently, you know, describe that was my own struggles, you know, with mental health and how it was, it was very frightening for me and scary to take that step to, to get help, to enter a detox unit, to, to detox from alcohol, to enter a mental health psychiatric hospital, because I was feeling suicidal and I had overwhelming depression. Um, I had to get out of my comfort zone and ha- find the wherewithal in myself to to take those steps to quite literally save my life. And you know, I'm I'm hoping that those who come to this book haven't experienced what I have or or you know aren't on that trajectory. But um, you know, it, I, like Preston said, this isn't just for people that are interested in horror. This is this is for people who are humans. Period. Um, that's because to be human is to suffer at times and, but also the degree to which we suffer, it is more in our control than we're aware of. And that's why it was really important for me in each chapter to offer a practice or a coping skill or a technique that people can start using that day in real time, start implementing in their lives to make little changes that when, when accumulated turn into really big changes and they're all things that I've directly used and worked with in my life that have helped me. Now I know that not everything works for everyone else, but that's why I wanted to offer so many different things. Cause even if a few don't, even if a few do, that's what matters, you know, cause if, if that little bit can start to change, then hopefully they'll be inspired to go find other things that can continue uh, helping them on their healing journey. 
76% of employees have struggled with at least one issue that affected their mental health. When you share, you're not alone. To follow up, uh, Chris, what would you say is your um, favorite part, your your favorite excerpt, your favorite chapter of Necessary Death? Yeah, I'd have to go with the the Halloween chapter just because Michael Myers is my favorite character. And I really had a lot of fun writing that one. I mean, I this book was just so much fun to write, period. It was tough at times because I really had to dig in and go to that place of of the difficult things I've been through in my life. But I love Michael Myers, um, the character in Halloween and uh, that in the preface, the the little intro about why am I writing this book and to be able to go back to, I know I mentioned Michael Jackson as a kid that scared me, but it wasn't that long thereafter, a few years that I started to fall in love with horror movies. And me and my friends would sneak off when our parents were asleep and watch them, you know, watch Friday the 13th or Halloween and just being able to go back to that place and, and, you know, nostalgia is always fun for me. So those were the two, I think, highlights for me. But overall, just the whole book was. was How, about you? How about you, Preston? That's really tough. It's probably a three-way tie for me between three different chapters. Uh, Return of the Living Dead, which Chris mentioned a couple of moments ago, was very personally important for me because it was one of the favorite movies of a high school friend of me and my brothers that unfortunately we lost during covid uh and and yeah and we 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 really parted ways after high school and had this kind of trajectory where my brother and I went in one life direction and he went in another life direction and I talk about this in the book that the the last time the three of us were ever together was the uh summer of uh 2009 and we never saw one another again and then I got a text message one day during the covid pandemic that he was gone and so yeah. And so writing that chapter was a way to really pay tribute to him and address some lingering things left with our relationship. And then kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum, the Hellraiser chapter, mm-hmm. I just really had fun writing. It's just really funny. And I really pulled out my my sense of humor for that one. And I think that it's uh, really just flip and sarcastic. And uh, I, I love Hellraiser. And I think that there's a lot of unintentional humor in that movie that I drew folk in that chapter and I just breeze through that one. I think that's the only chapter in the book that didn't require any revisions for my portion. Uh, what you're reading there is what I wrote the first time. And then going back to the more personal thing, the the Predator chapter uh, is really this kind of exploration of my time working as an author and working for a period in the film industry and the kind of very hard lessons I learned doing that and how I went into being a writer kind of with stars in my eyes and this sort of naive idyllic view of the culture and the world I was putting myself into. And it can hopefully serve as a cautionary tale for anybody who reads that, who might have similar aspirations of things to prepare themselves for. Has there ever been a a book before now, like Necessary Death, that you know of, Chris? No. um, And I checked, you know, I'm sure there's been books that might have little intersections. I can't name any off the top of my head. Um, But no, and that's why I really wanted to write this. You know, I films have been exploring these topics. They might not spell it out for you, you know, so simply. But if you look deeper, and that's part of what I love about horror is a lot of films have such deeper meaning than just like monsters killing 
camp counselors and things of that nature. So I, you know, no, I, I, unless, you know, Preston might correct me, but I, I don't know of anything that's happened. And, and what, something that really meant a lot was Dee Wallace who played the mom in ET and she was the mom in Cujo, you know, just an iconic actress wrote a really lovely endorsement for this book. And she mentioned that she never heard of a book combining these two things, but she was surprised because she's very much into spirituality and, and wellness too. And she's like, I, I can't believe this hasn't been done before, but here we are. And thank you for doing it. And, you know, that was D Wallace, mom from freaking ET. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, D. Wallace. Big. <laughs> yeah. well, let me pick your brain for this one. What do you think studios were thinking when they well, one studio did it when they did the exorcist. Were they trying to slap religion in the face or what was going on with that when uh, Preston, what was going on? I think that they were just really interested in making a truly subversive horror movie. The 1970s was the, uh, the high watermark for horror movies that truly did not give a damn and there was this, and I say this in a good way, this sort of race to the bottom to see how subversive can we get and how provocative and how upsetting can we get in the material that we're going to be exploring. And there's a lot of independent horror films from that period on the exploitation scene that were working on a similar logic, just seeing how far can we go and uh, how far can we push the envelopes to get under people's skin. And I think The Exorcist was the perfect material to test out that uh, that formula in mainstream America because it's based on a piece of literature. It's by this respected writer. It's a book, so that gives it this uh, these credentials, and it's not just a script written by some you know speedhead from Forty Second Street who cooked this thing up in a fever dream and hashed it out on a typewriter in tenement apartments. Uh, so you've got you got this perfect intersection of literature and horror and stuff that absolutely should not be in a movie. And there's material in that book, in that movie that is still upsetting today. That's still. Yes. Yeah, it's still just it so it's yeah. so against like what you're supposed to depict on screen. Right. And yeah. And I think that it was this attempt to see how far you they could, could go. go. Yeah. And at the time, you know, there's all these anxieties about spirituality and religion and the state of the world. Like the 1970s was this apocalyptic era for America. You had the Watergate crisis, you had the gas crisis, you had hostages in Iran, uh, you had an economy that made it seem like the United States of America, the most powerful, richest country in the world, was about to, about to go belly up. Just everything was going wrong. And you know, I, I talked to people who were alive at that time, and they say it really seemed like the world was ending. And there's that famous scene in Rosemary's Baby where Mia Farrow sees the real Time magazine cover, Is God Dead? And I think that following up on the heels of that and with everything that was going on in the 1970s that for what had once been a very solidly religious nation there was a great spiritual crisis going on and so for it to seem like the world is ending maybe god has turned his back on us and then here you have this movie about a demon possessing a little girl 
it's the perfect intersection of all of these anxieties and all of these things that are kind of in the back of people's heads. And I think it just really got to people in this primal way that it would be very difficult to replicate today. Well, the writer uh, brought in the crucifix, which she disrespected the crucifix. It was really out there. And uh, 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 another movie, uh, you know, I have to say, horror movie, movie, I have to say, what what was the writer saying about Carrie? Remember how angry Carrie was? And um, she just wanted to burn baby. <laughs> I, I mean, do you think they were speaking for women at that point as to what was happening with us in a movement, uh, Chris? Well, I mean, Perhaps, but also if you look at that story that, you know, the mother had severe mental health issues and that completely spilled over onto Carrie, who was this very timid, just shy, you know, decent young lady and got relentlessly bullied at school. And, you know, she also had, you know, these powers about her that, um, you know, that's what made the movie so fun was, you know, she started to explore, oh my gosh, I have these like telekinetic powers and, and can move things. And, um, and unfortunately they pushed her a little too far at the end. And, um, we all know what happened. Uh, they're all going to laugh at you. And <laughs> yeah, it was um, a bridge too far. <laughs> it was, it was, but, um, yeah, no, I, I thought that was a, I love that film. I actually even like the remake, uh, they did. I know they did a number of them. So I, gosh, I, I'm, I'm not sure which remake it was, but there was one that I really thought they did well. I think um, Julianne Moore was in it. Preston, you might know which one that was. Uh, uh, I think that's the one with Chloe Grace Moretz. Yes, not that one. That's the one. Yeah. I actually thought, I'm not usually big on remakes, but I thought they did a pretty decent job with that one. So, yeah. yeah. Mommy Dearest, Preston. Yeah. What are your thoughts? on? I think it, Mommy Dearest and was it uh, who threw mama off the train uh, i mean where were we going oh, with those back then throw mama from the train uh, whatever happened to baby jane those all actually belong to a very small but very well beloved subgenre of horror called uh, either bitty exploitation or hag exploitation and there's this uh theory that it, they grew up out of these growing anxieties over all of the great beauties of the early years of cinema beginning to age and for the first time people had this visual record of this this aging occurring before their eyes. Uh, in times past, the great medium had been theater, and it was this more intimate experience for audiences, and millions of people didn't get to watch the great actresses of the theatrical era grow old before their eyes. But now through the gift of Hollywood and cinema, we get to see Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and all of these other actresses grow old before us. And up until very recently, there was this incredible stigma against women aging and maturing. And it's there was this idea that men age like fine wines, women need to go sit in the corner and not age. And we need to cycle in the next generation of beautiful young women. And these movies all grew up out of these anxieties over they're still great actresses, but now they're old and different generations didn't know what to do with that. And so because of this horror of aging, we get the idea of 
the aged woman as a fixture in a horror movie. Right. What do you think um, about children watching horror films, Chris? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. You know, I worked with children for many years at an elementary school, uh, a lot of at-risk children. And I also did one-on-one youth mentoring uh, through the Department of Children and Family Services. Um, so, yeah, I I feel very protective. Uh, even though I don't have any children of my own, I feel very, very protective of children. Um that said, you know, I started watching these films when I was a child and I've gone into R-rated horror movies and seen parents bring their kids in. And, you know, that's not my place to say anything because that's their parental right to do so. Um, I, I'll share this. I, I walked in yesterday to CVS just to get a bottle of water. And I was like, I always do. I, I had to take a detour down the Halloween section just because that's my happy place. You know, I love seeing all the decorations and I just kind of started reflecting on what a fascinating world we live in, where there is this time every year that we celebrate severed body parts and skulls and, you know, all these creepy, scary things. And, uh, and so, yeah, I started thinking like, you know, kids walk down the aisle, but, you know, part of me, at least the reality of life is it can be very brutal. And, you know, you look right now, what's happening in Palestine and, and Israel and, uh, right. it's just, this is the reality of life. And, um, you know, so I guess at the end of the day, if the worst some kiddos are seeing are some Halloween decorations, uh, maybe a Halloween movie that's not super gory and not terrifying. Like I'm actually watching the Goosebumps series right now on Hulu and I love it. It's, but I'm watching, I'm like, wow, this wasn't the Goosebumps I remember as a kid, even though it scared me as a kid. It, now it's just like, whoa. Um, but it's, you know, for kids or teens at least. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think even though I had my own mental health struggles, I think I ended up relatively okay as a human. I have a pretty big heart. I'm kind and compassionate and horror movies didn't turn me into some monster that, you know, wants to kill people. So, yeah. So, Preston, do you think horror movies are good for children? It's really a case-by-case basis. Uh, when I was a kid, I had this weird push and pull where I saw, I was just at the right age to uh, see this wave of movies that came out that were like kind of child appropriate, kind of not Beetlejuice, Ghostbusters, the Monster Squad. And I would watch them and they would terrify me. And then I would beg my parents to show them to me again. Uh, I really think it's a matter of is the kid's, suited for it does the kid want to see it and what is the movie uh one of the saddest experiences i've ever had in a movie theater is i went to go see saw six when it came out and this couple brought their like maybe four or five year old kid to it and like right. 20 20 minutes into the movie this was an actual like nervous breakdown in the theater and is just crying and having an absolute panic attack and telling their parents, mommy, daddy, I want to go. I don't want to be here. I don't like this. And the parents yeah. kept their kid there through that entire movie. And yeah. I mean, the Saw movies are very visceral, very gory, very upsetting films. And that's, I- I'm going to say not, not, not a movie, not a series for kids. Right. Uh, so it's, it's the kid, it's the, it's the particular kid's mental mental makeup and it's the movie yeah. i i would not show a kid saw six depending on the kid i'd probably show them beetlejuice 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I will add to that, that, that there's a lot of stuff geared towards kids in a playful way. Like, yeah, it's probably more a cash grab than anything, but like the Halloween series, David Gordon Green and a couple of people put out a kid's book based on the movie. And of course, <laughs> I bought it and I love it. But it's, you know, I would I would read that to like if I had a kiddo, like it's it's appropriate enough. But I share that because one of the fun things I always love seeing when I go to conventions or even on like Halloween when you're out with trick or treaters is seeing the bonding through horror, like the little kid dressed up as Michael Myers and his dad dressed up as Michael Myers, yeah. you know, like, it's just so cute and they're having fun and they're walking around and I love that stuff. So yeah, I do think there is a place for it, but yeah, like the saw, the, the splatter, the, the gore just for the sake of blood, like no way, not, not in my opinion at least, but yeah. teach their own, you know. Do you, do you think um, animation films take some of the edge off of horror movies? Uh, Preston? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Something like A Nightmare Before Christmas. Because, like, if you actually depicted the stuff that you see in A Nightmare Before Christmas with, like, Hollywood-grade special effects in a live-action movie, it'd be really, really troubling. It's like you're getting into, like, John Carpenter's thing territory there. But because it's animated, there's this silliness to it. And even with the uh, Beetlejuice animated series that came out in the late 80s and early 90s, like, there's characters on that show who are it's literally rotting corpses but it's like animated and so it's fun and it's silly and it's accessible 76 percent of employees have struggled with at least one issue that affected their mental health when you share you're not alone well how much does the music the the, the scoring the sound effects how how much do, would you say that count for how scary the film is going to be? Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, being a musician, uh, you don't have to be a musician to appreciate it, but it's it's everything. Like I, especially back in the day before jump scares were a thing, you know, like I've seen some interesting videos on YouTube where it shows a scene in a more contemporary horror film. And, you know, with and without the jump scare sound. And it's not really scary without the sound. Back in the day, like, uh, there was a great film called Suspiria that I love by a guy, Dario Argento, and this band Goblin did the, the soundtrack, and it just is, like, incredible. The The soundtrack itself is horrific. The music is just so, it, I don't know, it bends and twists my mind, and, but then, you know, you fast, or I fast forward to John Carpenter's Halloween a very simple piano line that Carpenter himself scored. And, uh, you know, a lot of people now know, but didn't know back then, he's a brilliant musician and he's released some fantastic albums, but um, it sets the mood, the ambience, the, just the darkness. Like it's, it's, there's almost a sense of despair and dread in the notes that are being played. So yeah, it's, for me, it's super important to nail the soundtrack hundred percent. Well, I have to say it is such an, honor to have you guys as my guests uh, on the Kathy Durant show. I think I told you we were going to have a good time. So is that right? That's right. <laughs> You're great, Kathy. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds like you guys need to go a little bit further with this, further <laughs> than a book. Uh, you sound like, uh, you know, this sounds like commentary to me. <laughs> and uh, because I've never heard anyone talk so passionate about this genre genre of uh, of of uh movies i've never seen that before 
So uh, this, I, I have to say, hats off to you. Can each one of you tell us where we can find the book now? Tell us the release date and all of that. Chris first. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, the book's available anywhere books are sold online, um, retailers. Uh, if you prefer independent retailers, they can order it for you. It's an ebook. It's paperback. The audiobook should be available on our release date, which I will turn it over to Preston to give that bit of information. And happily, we are dropping the book on Halloween. Uh, yeah, October. Yeah, October 31st, 2023, Necessary Death will be unleashed onto the world. That is awesome. Uh, Chris? I did want to just note that um, the day after that, November 1st, um, Day of the Dead or All Souls Day or All Saints Day, goes by a few different names, um, Dia de los Muertos. Uh, we're having our virtual launch party. So anybody that's interested and wants to join us, um, you know, Preston and I are on social media. We're posting about it. It's a free event for an hour. And uh, we're going to be talking about the book and having fun. We're going to be doing a book giveaway and just a little celebratory um, excitement and to celebrate yeah, the book and horror and healing. Uh, can you, uh, Preston, can you give the website? Uh uh, how people can connect with you, um, you, and then uh, Chris, you tell them how they can connect with you. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Preston Fossil. It's a P-R-E-S-T-O-N-F-A-S-S-E-L, uh, just all one word. And if anybody's interested in attending the virtual launch party, you can reserve tickets through Eventbrite. Yep. You just type in necessary death on Eventbrite. It's a free app and it's free tickets and, uh, and then they'll send you a link. It's a Zoom um, virtual. We'll be doing a Q&A and conversations. We have a really rad guy that's going to be hosting it that, Preston, you might be able to say more about him. He seems great. Uh, yeah, if there's any uh, horror literature fans who are listening to this or watching this right now, the event is going to be hosted by Clay McLeod Chapman, who is the author of Ghost Eaters and the newly released What Kind of Mother, as well as the screenwriter behind a very little scene, but very cool independent horror movie called The Boy with Rain Wilson from The Office. And if you have ever wanted to see a movie where Dwight plays a serial killer on the run who finds himself at an abandoned roadside motel this is the movie for you great movie great movie (laughs) well you know uh i thought horror was not my thing but i enjoyed talking to you guys about it and i'm surprised that all of the movies i remember and uh i mean you are so well versed about everything when it comes to horror uh so are you going to put out t-shirts any merchandising uh, <laughs> with necessary debt well now that you mention it no i mean there's no plans but like i said you never say never who knows if there's if there's money to be made <laughs> but yeah no um i'm not i'm not all that hollywood myself but yeah you never know you never know yeah um any uh last comments uh preston uh, thank you for having us. Uh, thank you for listening and watching to everybody listening and watching this. And uh, please check out Necessary Death and follow Chris and I on social media. And that's our show. This is Kathy Durant uh, with the Kathy Durant Show, broadcasting on BBS Radio Television on the iHeart Network. I hope you guys had a great time. I certainly did. Bye bye.